why racial labeling should be eliminated, how we can start to build more self-confidence, how to get rid of political correctness, and so much more coming right up. This is episode number 299 with executive coach and author Sue Bong Pier. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. Before hopping into the episode, I want to tell you about my brand new daily, weekly, and monthly planner and video course called The Best Journey Planner. In this course, you'll learn how to slightly improve in all seven pockets of your life, which are health, relationships, career, financial, personal, spiritual, and other, and you'll learn how to spike in one of them at all times. You'll learn how to define success in these areas every single month, and then you'll boil down what that looks like on a weekly and a daily basis. Go to go.nickcarrier.com slash thebestjourneyplanner to learn more. Again, go.nickcarrier.com slash thebestjourneyplanner. But for now, let's go ahead and dive in. I'm so excited to bring you such a unique episode today with Sue Bong Pier. Sue is a strategy consultant and executive coach to Fortune 500 multinational corporations and is the author of the new book, The Essential Diversity Mindset. Sue comes from a multicultural upbringing with over 30 years of experience in global marketing, international joint ventures, and leadership development. Because of her background and her experiences, she has such a unique take on what the appropriate diversity mindset looks like. Before diving into the interview, be sure you're subscribing to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen and watch. And this is one of those episodes that I'm going to need you to share with a friend or family member because this is one of those episodes that can shift the way that we look at personal responsibility and it can shift our mindset, our actions, and our results. Just send them to nickcarrier.com slash podcast and be sure you're following me on Instagram at carrier underscore best you and be sure to go get a copy of her book, The Essential Diversity Mindset on Amazon. This book is a game changer, I'm telling you. I'd encourage you to go get one now and buy one for a friend or family member. Again, go grab a copy of The Essential Diversity Mindset. But without further ado, here's to getting closer and closer to your best you with the one and only Sue Bong Pier. All right, what's up everybody? Welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. I am super fired up today to have the one and only Sue Bong Pier with me today. Sue, I just want to start off by saying thanks so much for spending me the time with uh, spending the time with me today on this Wednesday. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, of course, of course. Like I was um like I was telling you before I press record, I absolutely loved your book. I finished it a couple weeks ago, um, The Essential Diversity Mindset how to cultivate a more inclusive culture and environment. And one of the things that I mentioned to you before we started recording was that it wasn't what I was expecting when I saw the title of the book. And, and it wasn't what I, what I was expecting in a good way because it was kind of a newer, more refreshing for me outlook on the topic. And like you had kind of said after I said that is you have a very unique approach to it because of your background um, and having you know lived or been born in, in South Korea, but then lived in Mexico and now lived in America for a long time and um, been in the corporate world there for a long time, you have a very unique viewpoint on it. And that's why I think it's such a unique viewpoint with the, on the topic and why I really enjoyed it so much. But the way I kind of want to start today is that kind of give everybody a little bit of a background on on you and where you've come from. So you moved from Seoul, South Korea to Mexico at around 14, 15 years old. 
Um, and, and so that requires, I feel like that requires mature, like maturing to happen on a more rapid scale. Like, I feel like you have to mature quickly. Right. So what do you feel like moving at your mid teenage years allowed for you to learn and allowed for you to experience that maybe you wouldn't have been able to learn or experience if you hadn't had done that? Right. Um, I think actually moving to Mexico City, it wasn't Mexico City per se, it was the American high school. It gave me a lifelong lens about how we can create a better human space. So let me go back. When I left to South Korea, and when I was almost going on to 15, South Korea was fairly homogeneous and it still is. So mm -hmm. I wasn't really exposed to other races. We had all our, you know, human dynamics of, you know, biases and all that, but it wasn't about race. So it was, it was just basically, I've been used to only Asians. Then we moved to Mexico City and it was, a, it's more of a Latin country, different. And their whole attitude is a very open, you know, they, I mean, they do have their own issues, but they're very different. So it was culturally different. But what was most um, Im important to my growing up was going to the American high school for four years in Mexico City. At the time, the school was the only English speaking school. So we had students from all over the world, you know, all races, accents, cultures, skin color. And what was amazing to me, which I didn't appreciate at the time, we never thought about any difference. Being different was a norm with a real pervading acceptance. And the only difference among us was our name. So we never really thought about you are this, you are this, you are that. It was just, hey, you're a human being. And that became part of my nature, you know, at that age. Of course, I miss my home, my friends, and we didn't know my family, my parents didn't think we were gonna be out for long. But then they, my father got assigned to U, the UK. So he thought I should have come to the States for college. So that's how I ended up being here. And then I, America has been my home for the past yeah. 50 years. And I think when I came here, what surprised me the most was people were looking at others based on skin color, based on race. So it was a real surprise to me. Oh, certainly I'm like an Asian immigrant or Asian minority. What is that? And I start also realize it divides people. Yeah. And I didn't know much about affirmative action. I didn't know anything about the, you know, the diversity issue here. Um, but at the time, I suddenly realized they are dividing people based on one characteristic, which is our skin color. And having lived in Mexico City as well as American school, and having my parents were in UK for four years. So I used to travel there all the time, spend a lot of time. Based on my exposure to different cultures and people, I really think we connect more than we divide. We yeah. share and connect through our human essence. We're not that different. 
and creating a divide forces people to see each other so differently. It creates a stereotyping. It promotes racism. Yeah. Well, I, I think one of the a couple of key things to kind of point out there is, like you said, the your, the school in Mexico is that everybody was different, but nobody even thought about that. It just wasn't it wasn't embedded kind of in the cultural to see everybody based off of where they were from or what their skin color was or anything like that. And then you move to America and that's how everything was. Everybody was labeled by their skin color or labeled by their religion. And that's kind of where I I want to go next because you talk a lot about in your book about racial labeling and the harms of it. Because as you said, we are often determining who somebody is by their skin color, the race, the religion, when we need to be looking at them as an individual because individuals are so different in every, it's, it's so, I think the problem is, is it's so easy to just group people together by their different categories. So to, to kind of finally get to the question, the question is what's the appropriate usage for racial labeling? Like when should we use it versus when shouldn't we use it? Because like you have to use it to a certain extent, right? Because it's easy. It's an easy way to get population and, and different things like that. But when when is appropriate to use it because of the different harms that it could provide? You know, U.S. Census will need to understand the demographics. Right. But it's done only every 10 years. Yeah. So the harm is not done. And we need to understand the demographic change. In in 1960s, when the affirmative action happened, the world was a white world. I think the major, minority accounted for only like 10%. And blatant racism, blatant discrimination. We needed to have a short-term formula yeah. to push for diversity, to change our mindset. But... The thing is, it has gone too long and it's not relevant today. So to going back to your question of when should we racial label and not, why should we label at all? What's the the gain? I mean, think about our political leaders, think about the media, every single time they define a person, it's based on race. Yeah. What 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 like what, what is there what is the actual reasoning for doing it and maybe there is no reasoning but like why why on every form you fill out why does it ask for ethnicity why do you have to why do you have to give that people have been conditioned to believe that that's a way to promote diversity yeah and they don't want to you know people don't want to accept the fact that hey we need to make some change this is not working because they have invested so long into dividing people, unless we have some true leaders said, hey, it's a time to, we can, you know, change overnight, but slowly uh, reduce the usage of our race labeling and start putting human elements. Say, what's the difference? And what's the difference between me and you in terms of being human? And same thing with the gender. I don't see me as a woman. I see a human being. When I worked, regardless of who my colleagues were, and you know, I worked in the 80s, 90s, obviously there were more male than female. 
I never thought of them being male. I thought about them as my colleagues. That that opens human space in a very different way. Yeah. Well, I think I think one of the things is, and I think you touched on it at least a little bit in your book, is if you like check one of the boxes as I am this or I am a woman or I am whatever, this and that, sometimes if there is a negative connotation or if there is a negative stereotype to that grouping, then as you're checking it off, like there's like studies that show that 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 affects you mentally and sometimes you live into that stereotype and so like uh, you know one of the things that i that i love that you wrote down i, I have this as um a, a quote from your book is you said what i learned was how i felt about myself drove how i saw and interpreted others attitudes so talk a little talk a little bit about that and what that means so when i say labeling it's not just about how we see others it's also about how we see ourselves. If we define ourselves into a label, it can be any label beyond the race. We really limit who we can be. And then with all these narratives of the stereotyping, you, I'm start thinking, oh my, suddenly I'm an Asian woman. I mean, you define yourself so much narrower. And then, the way I feel about myself is how we view others' actions. So just like you, you could be just friendly with me. But if I felt I'm an Asian um, immigrant, and then I'm thinking, "Uh uh-oh, there could be some biases here, your actions will project what I think. Versus when I see you, hey, a nice guy, and... That just opens the human space. We can have a dialogue and conversation and changes the whole possibilities of two people or three people or the group of people could have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I just thought about is how there is sometimes obviously real biases and real stereotyping and real racism, but then there's a lot of perceived bias, perceived racism, and all that kind of stuff. So how can how can us as a culture start to make sure that we don't assume that there are that there is racism or that there is negative things happening to us if there actually isn't, if that makes sense? It's a complicated issue, right? Um, most of biases are, we're not aware of our biases. That doesn't mean all biases are bad. Right. It's just being, having biases is being human and universal, right? Um, it will take both personal change, system change. And system change won't happen overnight. But we can do our part. Diversity climate is reflection of how we feel about each other, how what interactions we take. We dep- we actually shape each of us help shape diversity climate. Our we deposit our mindsets, emotions, and behaviors into space into the space we live every day. That means we can also start putting 
nicer one like connection and openness. So some of the, the you know, suggestions I have for people who want to transcend this and have more open uh, relationships is I call it color neutral lens. I think you may have seen it in my book. It's that if being color neutral means that, of course, if we have two eyes to see, we'll see the differences in others. But those distinctions are irrelevant in our interactions with others because we see and meet a human being behind the label that opens. So how do we get there? It's a practice, reflection. So a simple example, uh, an exercise that I have is when somebody, when you meet a new person or a new colleague, um, reflect on your lens. How did you see that person, that person first, as a label, skin color, or a human being? That will give a lot of insight into what your lens, because it's not being seeing a label is not being bad. We are products of environment. We yeah. have been conditioned for 60 years and we're being conditioned every day today. So I think that's one way to reflect. And then I do, I do that exercise times, even though I see people as individual, I don't want to be affected by this environment. So yeah. that's one way. The other thing is we really have to expand our empathy. How do you how do how does one develop and work on in getting more empathy? Okay, so it's hard, right? Yeah. But <laughs> all this self development work is hard. So empathy is really to embrace the fact that all the bumps and everything we live through has shaped our, who we are today. It's really having empathy for ourselves which actually help us to see others in a different light. Mm -hmm. We are not that different. Empathy is also about accepting the fact, regardless of who we are, we share our human virtues and fallacies and human struggles and triumphs. We know that we're humans, right? So as we expand our empathy, we reduce our assumptions and judgments. This blanket judgment and assumptions are killing us. I'm sorry to say that, that is true. And I wish more people are brave, leaders are brave to stand up and say, hey, we have to look into the truth. What is the truth? Rather than jumping, yeah, that yeah. person is wrong. And that's wrong. And the other real important part is that expanding or building a sense of self-empowerment. How, how can we do that? How can we do that? That's a universal challenge. However, I think it has, we have to look into ourselves. How, how, what am I feeling? You know, when we feel comfortable in our own skin. We navigate this world filled with biases and prejudice in a more, in a less effective manner. And we have to understand there are always people who are biased and prejudiced. 
And there are also always people who are good and open-minded. So this, I think the best place to start, to build, to look into ourselves is when something happened, we right away go into assumptions and judgment. I think that's the moment we have to stop and say, is it me or is it them? Instead, everything is outside now. The blaming. Yeah. Look into ourselves. Because it's not just a theory. theory. When people feel comfortable within themselves, they live a richer life. How can, how, how can we begin to start looking at ourselves more and internally more rather than jumping to the external blame? Man, it has happened within themselves. We can, nobody can help. Nobody can make us to feel how we want to feel. It's a self-work. It is a tough work. It's self-work. And I think oftentimes real breakdowns give us a epiphany to wonder, you know, what happened? And it's truly up to, and I wish their media, the social media, the narratives out there promote this. Yeah. Because it's nobody can tell you what to do. How can I'm just kind of thinking about this thought as you talk about this? I think it's super easy to it's it's really easy to blame something else or blame someone else or jump to an assumption because then we don't have to take personal responsibility. Then we don't. The, the flaws within us are not revealed to us. And so there's such easy motivation to blame someone else or something else. So how can we, how can we like trick ourselves or how can we show other people why they should be incentivized to do the opposite? You know what I mean? Cause it's like, it's, it's, there's an incentive to blame someone else because the incentive is we don't have to take personal responsibility and we don't have to see our own flaws. How can we get incentivized to look in, look within ourselves, see what's see how we can take responsibility and see where we need to work? Their own awareness, their own desire to have more in life. <clears throat> because if you keep blaming another, deep inside we know the truth. People don't want to face it because it's too painful. So the true start of expansion is when we can embrace that, hey, that was me, without feeling shame. Because we run into the shame and then we just close the door. And said, it's it's too painful. But if we keep living and blaming others, at the end of day, They are miserable. The people who are blaming all the time live a miserable life. Yeah. So then they become more angry. They blame more. They're more miserable to the point where sometimes some people will sit back and say, what can I do differently? Yeah. I think, I think when you're, I think when you're blaming, I think when you're blaming other people, 
you're putting a Band-Aid on the problem when the problem is really within and you just keep putting Band-Aid, 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 Band-Aid and then all of a sudden you realize that the whole problem has been with you and your own problems have just kind of escalated over time. But one of the things that, that was really like had a light bulb moment for me go off in my brain was when you said, when we can take responsibility and realize that something is maybe our fault, but we don't experience shame because of that. How, how can we do that? Like, how can we acknowledge that the fault was within, but we don't experience shame? Because the fault, whatever we are lacking, is not making a person horrible person. We have good and bad, not bad. It's and it's not permanent. permanent. It's not permanent. So when we can embrace all our virtues and fallacies, that's we can truly embrace ourselves. No one's perfect. Mm-hmm. We all have our, sh- whatever you call it, the, the stuff. Going yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's a really having self-love. Self-acceptance. Yeah. It's more than self-love. Self-acceptance. I'm okay and I want to be better. And when, when we start taking these small steps, life gets so much richer. And, you know, I did do the coaching, executive coaching a lot, and I don't, I'm not as active anymore. Um, however, regardless who a person is, it can be the top leader or it can be the, somebody who is working as just the starting out of the career. Human psychology is simple. You know, we, as soon as we go into our intellect, forget that. We have to really feel it because we avoid feeling our heart or emotions because it's like, that's not me. That's not true. So kind of along a similar topic to kind of get into a little bit of, I guess it's kind of a little bit of the, along the lines of political correctness, but it's also just on the lines of jumping to conclusions very quickly and judging somebody very quickly. And so one of the things you say in your book is how far should we go in accusing people without considering human error and unintentional mistakes? And I think that's could not be more prevalent than it is today because somebody could say one thing and they could get absolutely the mob can attack them and they might lose their job. Somebody could have tweeted something 25 years ago and they're, they're attacked and they they might be reprimanded because of that. So I guess kind of the question I want to know is like, what is the appropriate, especially for the people who might be more public figures or might be more in the public eye, what is the appropriate standard to maybe hold those people to so that they're not just completely destroyed and bashed if they do something that was human error because we're not perfect or that was an unintentional mistake. How can we not maybe crucify everyone who does that? But at the same time, you know, you have to hold some public figures up to a higher standard. So what's the balance there? I think we need strong, brave leaders. Today, everybody's so scared of the consequences or promote using this kind of blaming for their political interests, for their personal interests. 
I'm so disappointed at how the leaders are not stepping up. So do you think, do you think that one of the, there's, I think there's, you know, there's, there's two different viewpoints of it, right? The person, the leader who maybe does something or says something that was attacked by other people and then the people actually doing the attacking. So there's almost like two different parties. So do you feel like the leaders need to do something differently after they maybe say something less than ideal? We're gonna take a brief pause in the interview really quickly because if you're somebody who is looking to achieve a fitness goal or maybe you lack motivation to get into the gym, you lack some structure in your your weekly routine or maybe you've been wanting to get back into the fitness game and get back to maybe your weight loss goal or whatever goal it is and you're not really quite sure how. If that sounds like you, my 10 week program is for you because I help everybody set a very specific goal. Then we create a very specific strategy of the two or the three things that we need to do every single week that we believe are gonna make us successful with our overall goal. And then I'll help you execute and I'll help you hold you accountable every single week. So you do the things that you kind of know you should be doing, but you're you're not quite doing them right now. And that's what I've done with hundreds of people over the past 365 days, over the past a little over a year. And I want you to make sure that you are part of it as well. And enough for me, I want you to hear from the people who have done it in the past, what they've got out of it and, and why they did it in the first place. So here you go. I cannot say enough good things about Nick's 10 week program. I have always been somebody who has worked out but never really had a fitness goal. If anything, I really wanted to achieve. It was more so just to stay in shape. And Nick does a great job of helping you not only define the goal, but also realize what steps you need to take to get there. Tomorrow, as of my weigh-in week nine, I hit my goal of losing 25 pounds in 10 weeks. Just the whole methodology of the program with it being one big goal, followed by some smaller goals to help me reach that big goal and then the weekly commitments to help me reach those smaller goals. During these times, it's helped strengthen my mental health and strengthen my focus and really made sure to hold me accountable to my goals. I'm so happy that I was able to hit the goal and uh, so much so that I decided to do another 10 weeks with Nick. I would recommend it to anybody, no matter what your goals are, if it's weight loss, if it's running a shorter mile, if it's anything you would like to achieve, I think that this program gives you the tools to set yourself up for success. But one of the biggest benefits for me, and the biggest takeaway I had was one I wasn't necessarily set out to improve upon, and that was building more self-confidence and really instilling self-accountability. The program was great. Um, I'm doing it again a second time to continue my weight loss, and I just can't recommend it enough. So again, guys, if you lack motivation, if you lack structure, if you want to get back into your fitness game, but you're not really sure how, then I want you to make sure you go to nickcarrier.com slash 10-week programs. Again, nickcarrier.com slash 10-week programs to learn more. For now, let's get back to the interview. Who's to say it's less than ideal? That's the political correctness. Mm. So we're so worried about what to say. There's, there, there's no dialogue. There's no exchange of human dynamics. And I think leaders should, what they, I would love to see is the consequences are not as a dire and instant impulsive. And I think that that will shift when we are bowing to the political correctness and it leads to the actual consequences. 
then people do more of it. Yeah. I think we have to all be more empathetic and sit back and say, was what was the truth and what was not? We don't even do that anymore. We just jump. Yeah. And I think it's a dangerous ground. No, I, I completely agree. And I'm trying to think about... I, what I motivation would people have if they know they can get away with anything they say? There has to be some actions. There has to be some assessment. And I think it is also a huge, it has a lot to do with the media just instantly saying something without having the truth to get the new news, to get people's reaction. I think it's very complicated. Yeah. I know it definitely is. That's why I'm trying to figure out like where to, what, what the appropriate next question is. So you, do you feel like that the increased popularity, I guess you would say, or increased frequency of the use of political correctness is going to be fixed by the leader, the public leaders who are currently doing the acute, the accusations of that, them, them not jumping to conclusions right away. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It will change. And so, so I I think I I definitely 100% agree. I think sometimes those leaders can be incentivized to do that because of political gain, right? So like, so, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like you're, you're always going to have these immoral people out there who are, who are, who are going to do this to a certain extent. So is there any, is there any responsibility or is there anything that we can do as a culture to make it so when the immoral political leader who crucifies somebody because of political correctness and they're incentivized to crucify them because the public might jump behind their back. Like how can we make sure we don't incentivize that person by, by agreeing with them, if that makes sense? Election. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in the meantime, I believe the more of us as an individual to reflect and to not to jump on conclusions without faith, without facts, it will shift the culture. I mean, it's a slower way, but it will, I think, really help. And we are affected by others, right? And yeah. that's what mob mentality is. And it will take some unique individuals and it will take some brave leaders yeah. um, and less you know, divisive media. It will right. take all. And the shifting in, of to a divisive culture, it, there is an energy to it. And we're getting, you know, it's like snowball rolling. Yeah. No, I, th- I agree. I think, you know, it's all about us as individuals not falling victim to that part of a brain our part of our brain that that freaks out when something happens. You know what I mean? It's like take a step back, 
and look for the facts. Don't judge right away. Don't jump to conclusions right away. And like you said, that takes that takes longer, but that's that's the that's what it is. Like we as human beings all individually need to work on ourselves so that we don't jump to conclusions right when somebody says something. And it will enrich our life. So instead of being reactive, we need to be responsive. <clears throat> and Amen. that will make, yeah. And it will help their life, everyday life. And like you said, I think it's, 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 it's frustrating because I think the people who jump to conclusions, the people that blame, they do think they're doing themselves a favor in the short term when they're actually hurting themselves in the long term like we talked about earlier. So it's like we need to like all realize that it does not do us actually any good to jump to conclusions so quickly and to judge so quickly that's only hurting ourselves. Yeah, and the worst part is that, that jumping to conclusion oftentimes are rewarded. And that's when I talk about mm, the, that's good. the leadership. Yes. And we, I mean, I will hope this country becomes much more integrated and harmonious. We, every day we live in this divisive climate affects us, affects our yeah. health, affects people are not happy. Yeah. So that's the reason I want to write a book that yeah. we can live differently. Yeah. No, like you said, when people jump to conclusions and then they, they, they skew the words that were actually said and, and then, oh my gosh, this, I will, this is an awesome conversation. Um, I want to, to kind of start to trend things a little bit towards the last few questions. Um, you wrote that one of the most important lessons that you learned was I am who I think I am, not how I think others see me. And I think that's such an important lesson, not just in diversity and not just people who might be of the race or religion that might be stereotyped a lot. That's anybody. That is anybody needs to learn that lesson and needs to act on that lesson. So how did you begin to adopt that mindset? Again, I'm going to read the quote one more time. I am who I think I am, not how I think others see me. So how did you start to adopt that mindset? I think the people he came when I came to this country and, you know, my father was a very high profile person. And so in, when they moved to England, he was Korean ambassador to England and all the African countries. So I used to shuttle back and forth. I, my school was in Baltimore. And whenever I went to England, I was treated like, whoa, she's the ambassador's daughter. And the same day I fly back to the U.S., oh, she's an Asian immigrant, minority. And I suddenly realized nothing changed about me. Yeah. It's what people perceive me as. And I think that was a start of my understanding. I cannot be just, I, I, I don't, my identity, self-identity cannot be determined by what others see. And you know, we all like to be seen nicely. I mean, that's a human nature, right? And then living as a minority in America, I wanted to, I wanted to be part of, I wanted to be feeling so it belonged. And I've always yeah. felt different. My English, I had a huge insecurity about my English because I didn't learn it until I was almost 15 in another country. And so 
all these things I'm trying to abide by what looks like I am more belonged, I fit in. I mean, it's a part of human nature. We all want to be fit in. But it's the, the, the degree of how much I am doing, leaving myself out and trying to abide by whatever I need to be, I need to be. And I think it's been, the epiphany came early, but it's been a long process of working. And, you know, sometimes it's still like, oh, maybe I, I didn't do it right. But I have to sit back and say, hey, I did my best. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was, I think that's such a unique experience that most people won't get in regards to you going back and forth from the UK to the United States. You know, you went to UK and you were the daughter of this ambassador and you were treated super, super well, like royalty probably almost. And then you come back to the United States and you're an Asian immigrant and people treat you maybe a little bit differently. And so for you to be able to realize like nothing about me has changed just the environment changed and they see me differently, but that's not me. That's not me. That's just the environment that I live in. And for you not to let that change who you are and, and how you acted is, is key. Mm -hmm. Yes. And people, even if they don't have this kind of experience that I had, that was an extreme experience. Yeah. I used to think nothing changed about me in three, four hours. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think for people to build a sense of empowerment, I think people have to be, I mean, in today, all these things, the fitness and how you should look and the weight, nutrition, people are so in a hostage of what they should look like, social media and all this. I think it has to somehow, somewhere, that I have to come back to themselves and say, hey, who am I? Am I okay with being myself? Of course, we always want to improve ourselves, right. but to be a, a prisoner of whatever dictates outside, I think that really creates such sense of insecurity and you don't have yourself. Who am yeah. I? Where do you think that self-confidence can be built for people? Like, where does self-confidence, where is self-confidence built for you? Man, I worked on it a long time. See, people just think, oh, you come from a nice family, you should be confident. It's like a privileged way. That's not true. Self-confidence, I believe, can come from starting with parenting. Mm-hmm. How, what, 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 what in particular, how, like, what can a parent do well in order to make sure that their children are self-confident? They don't have to tell them everything they did perfect, but they can be loving, they can listen to, and they um, appreciate, honor the kids' voices. I didn't grow up that way. I had to be perfect in everything, study, the education is huge thing in, in Korea. And if I didn't do something right, I was, you know, this, uh, not punished, but lectured. Yeah. So I didn't grow up with a lot of self-confidence. I had to build it. And I did go through a lot of self-development work, a lot of 
examination of my in, inner world, exploration, and making shift. Make our mindset drives our actions and outcome. So I had to really go into like, what were the elements that made me feel much less than others. And then coming here as a minority, that didn't help. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a, it's a process. And I can tell you, every single step we take give us a immensely different results and in rewards that we live in our daily life. Yeah. If, if somebody was listening right now and they were maybe in the spot that you were when you were younger, when you moved to the United States and maybe did not have that much self-confidence and they came to you and say, what's one thing that I can start to do today? What's one thing that I can start to do tomorrow to start to slowly build my self-confidence? That's a tough one. But the one thing they can start doing is talk to themselves and say, you know, who am I? I'm feeling, embrace their feelings first. I'm feeling much less. And in America, especially being minority carries certain emotional burden. Minority, there's a difference between statistically become, might being a minority statistically and being a minority emotionally. Mm. Huge difference. Wow, say that again. That was great. There is a difference between uh, being a minority statistically versus being a minority emotionally. Because as a minority, on, when I was being labeled as a minority, it made me feel constricted, alienated, and not belong. And that is pervasive to, to most of minorities. So my suggestion is they come here with different world. They have to give themselves room, say, hey, I'm different. I don't know this world. I want to feel I'm American. I want to belong. And the climate is not very conducive to that. But for a person, I think they have to embrace the fact I don't feel belong. I feel embarrassed because my accent, my English, whatever, and I don't have the wealth as a lot of people. I'm starting out. But embrace that instead of running away from it. Mm. Say, that, hey, that's who I am today. That doesn't mean I'm less than anybody else. I think it's a self-talk. If it's a little kid, parents must talk about that. And they have to encourage kids to be themselves and to excel. And I think excelling, doing well, attaining competence is a true confidence building. Mm, that is so, so good. I mean, seriously, that was, um, that was awesome. I mean, I think you, the quote that I wrote down that I, I love so much is there's a difference between being a minority statistically and being a minority emotionally. But like you said, your mindset drives your actions, which drives outcomes. And whether or not you're of a typical minority race or religion and 
any, anybody can feel like a minority in different ways. And if you, and if you feel like that way emotionally, your actions are going to reflect that. And, and therefore your outcomes are going to reflect that. And so if we can, if we can work on ourselves to make sure that we're not isolating ourselves emotionally, then that's one of the biggest steps in building self-confidence. And then you build self-confidence and you take actions differently and then your outcomes are different and your whole world changes. Yes. And this racial grouping, racial labeling is actually harming the process of person who could come up because they are mm -hmm. always labeled, you're this, you're this. Yeah. Gosh, that's good. That's good stuff. Um, I think the second to last question that I want to ask is, one of the big things that we, we've talked a lot of just about the idea of diversity and stuff and not, not as much about you and, and your past and stuff. So I want to dive a little bit into that before we finish and talking about your father. You've, talk, you've touched on him a little bit. So I want to give everybody else a little bit further insight in regards to your father and, and maybe a little bit of experience there. So what is maybe the biggest lesson that you feel your father taught you? Whether or not he actually sat you down and taught it to you or you just got the lesson from seeing his actions and stuff like that. What do you think is the biggest lesson that he taught you? I think biggest lesson, when I think back, you know, he had fallacies, human fallacies, as well as virtues. And if he told me anything, because he was such, had such a high profile um, in Korea, that learned that he's also only human. And he worked on himself to improve mm -hmm. who he could be. But actually, the more I think about it, another biggest lesson he told me or the emotions that I felt was he actually told me also in words, there's no difference between boys and girls. You go as far as you can. And this was 19, I was born in 1950s. And South Korea is still very um, male-driven. And at the time, 50s and 60s, that was a really revolutionary. So I think that made me feel like he really loved me and just um, feel me as a competent human being way before gender difference. Yeah. Well, I think it... it it shaped your mindset around not seeing yourself as a woman who might be held back. And I think, I think the more and more that our cultural, our culture tells people that because you're a woman, it's going to be harder because you're African American, because you're black, it's going to be harder because you're Asian, it's going to be harder because you're Mexican, it's going to be harder or anything like that. The more we're, our culture says that that's a thing, the more people are going to live into that. I know. They, they will feel less already by saying that, and they feel victimized. Yeah. They feel Great. marginalized. And none of this help people to move forward. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's an awesome thing that, you know, they, like you said, your your father loved you so much. There are some things that, you know, maybe you would do differently than, than than he did, but I think that's a super, super important lesson that he taught you at a young age, and I think that did a great job of shaping your mindset and shaping how you lived out a lot of your life, for sure. Um, well, before I ask the last question, Sue, I just want to acknowledge you because this has been one of my favorite 
conversations for sure. I, again, I, I, I think this is so, I know this is such a, such an important topic right now. Uh, and it is only going to continue to get more and more important unless, or until I guess we start to really take individual responsibility to not start making or not jumping to conclusions and blaming people and, and having assumptions. And not a lot of people are saying that that's the solution and you are. And that's why I really want to acknowledge you because I think that that really is the, tr- the true solution to this problem. And you're trying to get that across to people. Of course, of course. Well, you guys, if you enjoyed this conversation at all, then you need to make sure you go grab this book, the essential diversity mindset how to cultivate a more inclusive cultural culture and environment. And like I said, I absolutely loved it. I have like six pages of notes um, from this book on stuff and I pulled out some quotes from it. So you guys obviously know how good it is already. But I want to make sure you guys go get the book that you can go get it on Amazon. You can go follow Sue on LinkedIn. You can also go to her website at suepeerassociates.com and I will have all that stuff linked up in the show notes. Is there any other place that people should go learn more about you and support you? No, that would be great. You already covered it. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Of course. Of course. Well, last question, Sue, is I think that getting closer to the best version of ourselves is both a constant journey and I think it's a very unique journey. I don't think we're ever at that best version of ourselves. And then I also think that the way that I'm going to get closer to the best version of myself is going to be a little bit different than the way that you get closer to the best version of yourself. So last question is for you personally, if you could currently do or currently work on three things to get closer to the best version of yourself, to get closer to that best suit you could possibly be, then what are those three things that you could currently do or currently work on? That I worry less. Because mm-hmm. that doesn't help me. I know that intellectually and yet I can't help to worry so I don't think that's very healthy and the other best version is really um, working on my physical self because I, I told you about my surgery so I'm weak so I think it is so integrated our mental health and our physical health yeah. And then if third thing will be continue work on my relation, my good relationship with my children and my husband. Mm-hmm. That in, and actually, there's a one more. Okay. Just keep loving myself. Instead judging and said you could have done better. Just That's loving great. myself and just do my best. And I know this journey to reach the best of myself is forever. There's no end to it. And it takes persistence because we, we are into this uh, era of a fix it, fast fix. There's no such thing when it comes to changing our mind. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, those are four great things, Sue. I, I really appreciate your time today. I appreciate your work and uh, can't wait for people to go get the book and, and learn about it themselves. That's all we got today. Thank you so much, Nick. This was such a pleasure to speak with you. That was such an amazing episode. That is one of those episodes that is mindset changing. There's a difference between being a minority statistically and being a minority emotionally. I absolutely loved that quote. Whoever you are, don't put yourself into this box and tell yourself a story that you are less 
capable of achieving, of achieving things. Because if you begin to see yourself as a minority emotionally, then you're going to live into that mindset. You're going to live into the potential negative stereotype, and that's going to affect your beliefs, your actions, and therefore your results. Go ahead and be sure you share this episode with a friend or family member because this one needs to be heard. It needs to be shared. And also be sure to rate it and review it on iTunes and the Apple Podcast app. And if you're interested in having a daily, weekly, and monthly planner that gives you confidence that you're always getting closer to your best you, then go to go.nickcarrier.com slash thebestjourneyplanner. Again, go.nickcarrier.com slash thebestjourneyplanner. One of the things that Sue, Sue says is, I am who I think I am, not how I think others see me. And she says, what I learned was how I felt about myself drove how I saw and interpreted others' attitudes. I mean, these couple of lessons have so much power in them. It gives you the ability to take control over yourself and who you are, and it doesn't, and it makes you not give the power to anyone else. Also, be sure to go grab a copy of The Essential Diversity Mindset so you can read firsthand about all Sue's lessons and stories that have allowed her to develop this amazing mindset. So be sure to start developing empathy, to not immediately jump to conclusions, and to build your self-empowerment so that you can get closer and closer to your best you. You.